0: Welcome to season five of KnowledgeCast, hosted by Jack Williams. We're excited about this season's guest, and you can learn more about this new season along with our guest in previous seasons at JackWWilliams.com slash podcast. Now let's listen into an all new episode with Jack and this week's special guest.
1: Well, welcome to our fifth season of KnowledgeCast. Glad you joined us today. If you're a first time listener, welcome. And if you're one of our regulars, thanks again for coming back. Uh, well, today it's my pleasure to have Sean Murphy uh, join us. Sean is a serial entrepreneur who has been over 25 years in the IT industry. He was one of the three partners who launched Canvas Systems, one of the world's largest independent resellers of uh, pre-owned enterprise computer systems. Sean then co-founded Optimus Solutions, which he sold to Softchoice Corporation, and then co-founded Forest 360, which was later sold to Converge Technology. Sean's last entrepreneurial venture was Procurey Corporation, uh, where he served as chairman and global CEO and ultimately took Procury Public on the Singapore Stock Exchange. Sean also has a passion for teaching young people uh, the skills and the courage to pursue an entrepreneurial pathway in their life. It's nice to be here, Jack. Well, listen, before we talk about your, your uh, business career in a minute, I want to go back to your college days at Emory. Uh, You told me a story a few years ago that was just fascinating, and your college experience didn't start off with a bang. Um, Tell us about that and how you were able to also help your family as a result of that experience.
0: Sure. So I guess going through high school, I was one of those uh, students that teachers always said, Sean, you have so much potential. And that word potential is kind of a backhanded compliment for saying you could do a lot more than you're currently doing. Right. And I was the potential kid, right? I had lots of potential. Um, But I was smart enough that I could do kind of the minimums and make good grades in high school. And then I got accepted to uh, uh, Emory university here in Atlanta. And I was going to go there pre-med. And the reason I was going to be pre-med is because I looked like my grandfather. My grandfather was this, kind of mythical small town doctor in middle Tennessee. And he was wise beyond measure. One story of his wisdom was that he saw a a farmer's wife because she was ill and he prescribed some medicine and the bill was $3. And the farmer politely said he didn't have cash, but to pay his bill, he wanted to give my grandfather some chickens. So my grandfather said, fine, paid in full chickens, gave the man the receipt. But my grandfather knew that any farmer that didn't have three dollars cash couldn't afford to even depart with his chickens. So in the middle of the night, my grandfather loaded the chickens in his car and drove out to that man's farm and put them out. Because he knew also no man knows how many chickens he has. So that way he was able to, <laughs> he was able to preserve the man's self respect, clear his debt. But my grandfather knew there were there was a bigger perspective to life. So I grew up hearing stories about that. My grandfather unfortunately died at a young age. He was. A, The only doctor for 12,000 people and kind of worked himself to death. So I grew up, I looked like my grandfather. So they used to call me little doc. Now back to your question. So now I'm going to Emory. I'm pre-med. I've kind of coasted through high school. And I get down to Emory and I'm as selfish as I can be. All I care about is myself. And um, I join a fraternity. I start making bad decisions. I start skipping class. And next thing you know, I'm making bad grades in pre-med. But it doesn't really bother me because I only care about myself. Well, then the first day of my sophomore year, I go to class and they asked me to come to the front of the class and take a note to the registrar's office because there had been a problem with my dad's tuition payment. And so um, I called my dad. He told me there had been some financial reversals, but no matter what, they were going to keep me at Emory because I was going to be a doctor and I was going to kind of turn the family fortune around. And so I drove home. And I had to tell my parents that I had really let them down. And, um, you know, everybody's on the edge of tears there. And my dad, not a not a man to cry. We just were in a tough spot and I had put us there. And so they said, well, the first thing you got to do is you got to transfer. And I told them, no way. I My parents were so proud of me for being there. There was no way I was going to do that. But what I was going to do is going to do it on my own terms. So I went back down and... I got out of my housing contract and I drove to Emory every day from my parents' house about 45 minutes away, which I think to this day I may have been the only commuter student to ever go to Emory university. But <laughs> I, uh, I got a full-time job at home Depot. I worked 40 hours a week. I commuted. I switched to economics. I learned to buy low and sell high. And, um, I took on certain student loans, which are popular in the media today. Um, but I took serious about paying them back and I paid them all back. But the story that I related all the way to you was so then years later, after we'd had some financial success as an entrepreneur, I came into some money and I went and saw my mom and dad and said, get out all your bills. And they had a little mortgage left on that house and they had $57,000 with a credit card debt. And I wrote a check and paid it all off and we all cried again. So you can make your parents cry either way. And I realized it's better to do it the right way than the wrong way.
1: That's, that's quite a story. Um, Well, you've got the, obviously the entrepreneurial spirit. How did all that come about?
0: Well, actually I'm an accidental entrepreneur. I, uh, after going through some of that situation in college, I was kind of, my relationship with money was, I was fearful that something bad was going to happen. So I was kind of a hyper saver. Um, And so I was working for a computer company and doing really well. And at some point I got offered a job to be, to take over for my boss while he was on vacation. And um, while I came with a very lucrative pay raise, I didn't feel like that was the way I wanted my life to go. I didn't want to work for somebody who wanted to fire my boss when he was on vacation and give me his job. And so um, in a couple of days, I decided it was time for me to go, too. So me and my boss started that uh, business that you refer to canvas systems. And it was right before the beginning of a little thing called the internet, which we didn't really even know much about. And the company went from zero to a hundred million dollars in revenue in three years. Good gracious. It was a, a lot, some, a lot of hard work, some opportunistic behavior, but mainly a lot of luck.
1: Well, you've been a part of obviously several startups. Um, Is there one of them that was, you know, more rewarding to you or more special than the others? Well, so
0: in some ways, this, my entrepreneurial career is kind of, it's really been more opportunistic. We started Canvas Systems selling used computers, and then we got a chance to sell new computers, but we couldn't do it under the same umbrella. So we had to start Optimus Solutions to sell new computers. So it's been opportunistic. So all of those companies kind of grew out of that base of the canvas systems business. And that's the one that's the most memorable for me. Cause that's the one where I had to take all the money I had in the world and stick it into a corporate bank account with my former boss. And it's funny. I had been such a hoarder of money that I actually was liberated. I felt like, you know what? I, I'm all in, I kind of like the poker term. I was all in, and it was liberating. It made me realize, yes, I'm in a precarious position, but if I work hard, I can, you know, and, it, and that's how I was able to achieve some level of success by being willing to to, to, to jump and to accept the risks and then to work
1: hard to ensure the rewards. Well, when you, you know, when a husband does that and goes all in, that means the wife is all in there with him. Uh, how was your wife handling all that all in theory? Well, my wife couldn't be more different than me
0: in all the right ways. She was a straight A student at Emory University. She was an all-American swimmer. And she was also the top accounting school student and the top business school student. So when I walked across the graduating podium, I had to take a quick glance to see if there was any uh, calligraphy inside. Whereas she got crystal trophies when she walked across the thing. So she... uh, it, the, and, and the reason I mentioned that is because it gave her a lot of confidence that if I blew the family up with this crazy entrepreneurial idea, that she could go to work because she had been a, uh, been staying home with our young children, and she could help fix the m- big mistake that I made. But um, strangely enough, when I told her about this great job offer I had, but I told her the circumstances, she really questioned whether I was really making the right decision to turn down such a lucrative job offer, but I told her that someday we'd be on vacation and it'd be me. Yeah. So she understood that. But then she said, well, what are you going to do? And I told her, I'm going to go to work, uh, form a company with my boss, and we're going to start our own business. And she said, you sell everything we have, we're going to be rich. And <laughs> more important than the than the willing, it was the support. Kind of like they describe how a bird has the wind beneath its wings. That was the wind beneath my wings. Just hearing those, that unconditional support. And my wife is, she's smart. So I felt like that was kind of some validation that, uh, that we need, that I needed to make sure that I was making the right decision. Cause I did have a small family. I didn't really have a fallback plan.
1: What a statement. Sell everything we got. We're going to be rich. That, that, that is the ultimate all in. Well, starting a company is not easy. Um, And this is probably a question you may have to struggle with, but a lot of people that are in the entrepreneur world would love to hear your perspective. But what have you found to be the most critical aspect of making a startup work?
0: So, you know, I see a lot of startups where they try to have one accountant and one salesperson and one operations person. We started with all salespeople, (laughs) me and my boss. We were all from the sales side. And so. I think sometimes startups think about too many things rather than you've got to create revenue and margin to pay the bills. And so everything I've ever done has been really sales driven. Um, I would mention, though, that when we got to 100 or 200 million, then that that was a struggle because we didn't have the discipline maybe inside the organization. Um, But for pre-entrepreneurs, I always say the easiest way to go out of business is to sell, not to sell enough. And the second easiest ways to sell too much, because you you sell too much, then you start having structural problems. So you, but to me, it's all around. You've got to think about how to market your product, how to capture customers, how to get the money in the door to pay the bills. Um, because we we had a limited amount of money, and if if it didn't work, we didn't have we didn't have uh, venture capital or any of that. We were we were bootstrapping this thing.
1: Well, you obviously figured it out. Um, Well, you took Pecury Public, and but you did so on the Singapore Stock Exchange. We had a guest, uh, have a guest this season that um, shared with us his experience taking a company public on the New York Stock Exchange. What were the reasons you chose the, the Singapore Exchange and how is that process different than doing it on the New York Stock Exchange?
0: Well, so to answer those questions kind of in reverse order, the process is very much the same. Um, You know, you have to basically get an underwriter, a bank to underwrite it. There's a lot of due diligence, making sure all the financial projections and everything are accurate. So the the process is the same. The reason I did it on the Singapore stock market is my backers were Singaporean investors. And uh, as a little bit of a cautionary tale to the United States, we did a $100 million IPO. You can't really do a $100 million IPO. The numbers have all gotten so big here. That would be considered a micro cap in the United States. Um, so for a small IPO, you have to look at other exchanges. Um, but I think it'd be a good idea if America had an exchange or two for micro cap type companies. Um, so they don't have to look for international uh, exchanges to list on.
1: Okay. And I didn't know that. I I didn't know that 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 would have been considered a micro. Well, Well, I mentioned, let me me just clarify, there are a lot of companies that go public
0: before revenue and stuff, but they've got a really exciting story, maybe a biotech or something. If you have a normal business, we were selling data center computers. That's not like biotech. You have to have revenue and margins. You have to be, you have to be kind of profitable. I know in the last few years, we've seen some companies that aren't profitable, but I don't know how to. I don't know how to run companies like that.
1: Well, obviously, some others had, didn't know how to run them either. Uh, as it turned <laughs> yeah. out. Um, well, I mentioned earlier you got a passion to encourage young people to step out and, and follow your path and become an entrepreneur. When you're talking with someone or or teaching young people about becoming entrepreneurs, what are your selling points to them to encourage them to? to explore that? What counsel do you give them to prepare if they do choose that path?
0: Well, if I look at my own uh, path, I became an expert working for somebody else for 10 years, and I learned everything about that business. And then when things didn't work out with that, I was able to be an accidental entrepreneur, but I knew everything that I was doing. And I've heard it said that things are only risky if you don't know what you're doing. And so I eliminated a lot of risk because I knew everything about what I was doing. But the the thing that I counsel young people on is they see these billionaires and and all these things, and those are all based on phenomenal ideas, just phenomenal ideas. Like the idea of Amazon, that was a phenomenal idea in 1998 right. or 94 or whenever it was founded. Google was another one. Canvas Systems was formed in 1998, and so was Google. Obviously, Canvas Systems was not nearly the idea that Google was. So I try to caution people unless you have a phenomenal idea, then you don't want to be an entrepreneur like that. A lot of people have these ideas that they think are phenomenal. So if I thought I had a phenomenal idea, I would put together a business plan and I would go see investors. And if it's good, really brilliant, you'll be able to get outside investment. The kind of entrepreneurship I know how to do is form a business, get customers, sell them products or services, generate revenues and margins, and then use those margins to grow. That's the, so for young people, I try to tell them, um, for example, I uh, have done a lot of volunteer work around our technical college near my house. And I struggle because I see these young people that are becoming plumbers and the world needs more plumbers. But I don't think it's interesting to be a plumber and have a one-person plumbing business because then you just own a job. I'm trying to encourage these people to build a 10-person plumbing business so then you can take vacations and you might can generate enough kind of value for your family that then you can maybe change the trajectory of the fa- of your family. Um, so I've always believed in trying to get it a little bit bigger and thinking bigger. And so that brings me to another point that I tell young people, you've got to learn how to lead people you've got to learn how to build teams. You've got to learn how to hire professionals to be a support. You need lawyers and accountants. And so you've got to learn an awful lot. So if you don't like to learn, I generally wouldn't think uh, entrepreneurship would be the way uh, you should go. I would say you got to learn fast. Yeah, you have to learn fast. You also if you learn you. slow, it can kill you. Yeah, you have to be decisive. You have to get the pros and cons on one piece of paper and you've got to make some decisions and you're going to get about 70% of them, right. If you're good, 75, you're going to make mistakes.
1: Well, uh, I know that you're a big believer in in mentorship and we try to get uh, our guests to give us their thoughts about the importance of, of young people seeking out, you know, a mentor in their life. What are your thoughts on that? What do you say to someone about that?
0: So I definitely think if you can find somebody that can, give you the benefits of all the mistakes they've made. So you don't have to make them. Wow. Or if you can get somebody that will talk about some of these ideas and kind of filter them. I mentioned earlier about great ideas. Sometimes great ideas start as a bad idea. Then you just tweak them a little bit and they get a little bit better. And then, you. so I think getting a mentor could be key. Um, I guess I'm old enough that I, didn't really have the word mentor in my mind. And so I kind of did the old fashioned way. I read books out of the public library about yeah. people that were successful. There was a gentleman in Atlanta named J.B. Fuckel that was uh, one of the richest men in America. And he was self-taught, didn't go beyond high school and was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And I read his biography and I said, well, if he can do it, I can do it. And then before he passed, I had the Honored to meet him personally, and I thanked him for writing that book.
1: We had a guest on uh, last season, and he wanted to meet with Mr. Fuqua because he, same reason, uh, he wanted to have a chance to just meet him and pick his brain. He was very young, and Mr. Fuqua was already established. And so he finally was at a function, and he, he finally got enough courage to go ask him and uh, just hoping he, you know, the guy didn't embarrass him. Uh, and he said, well, of course I will meet with you. He said, I'm a product of every person I met. I can't afford not to meet with you. And and spent set up a time and spent 30 minutes with him. And this gentleman ended up being a very successful um, real estate developer. But he, he said, you know, I'll never forget him making that statement. In fact, I just, uh, I just wrote one of our Ideals Moments. It goes out to our Ideals alumni telling that story. It will go out, uh, I think, in September.
0: Yeah. One uh, last we- one last story about mentorship. So I was in a fraternity at Emory and I found an article in Forbes magazine about a man that I really admired. I didn't know he had been in my same fraternity. Um, and so I tore out the Forbes magazine and I mailed it to him at his corporate headquarters thinking I'd never hear. And I got a personal letter back and that was E. Lee Calloway yes. of the Calloway golf, Calloway golf clubs, but more in for Georgians. Callaway gardens. Right. And just really quickly to tell your listeners, this is why I admire this man. He's probably the closest thing to a mentor and I never met him, but he wrote me a a letter. inspired me. His family had Callaway industries, which was a big, uh, textile firm and all his, uh, siblings went to Georgia tech and majored in, uh, industrial engineering or some sort of textile engineering. Well, Ely went to Emory. So I guess he was the black sheep or he, I don't know. Right. Then instead of going to work for the family business, he went to work for Brown Industries, which was their number one competitor. I don't know what drove all that, but. Well, I bet that was some interesting holidays. Yep. And he rose all the, it was a 10,000 person business. He rose all the way up to number two in that business. Then he retired at a young age with millions. And he founded Callaway Vineyards in his fifties, grew that sold that and made more millions. Then I believe, if I have it right, at 64 years old, he was on a driving range and saw somebody who had hand-built this giant golf club driver. And Eli said, that guy's on to something. And he bought the patent, and at 64 years old, he founded Callaway Golf Clubs. Oh, what a story. Never never to. Right. The reason it matters to me is because I'm 56 years old now, and I still think my best ideas and my best days are ahead.
1: Well, I was going to ask you, what's next for Sean Murphy? So I've actually, uh,
0: I I uh, we, I we, was able to uh, procure, we had a change in ownership. We had a little bit of a bidding war for our business. And uh, this multi-billion dollar Japanese company bought operating control and I wanted to retire. And I uh, was able to sell my stock and I kind of semi-retired slash retired. And I just didn't like it. So um, the underbidder was a multi-billion dollar Canadian company. And they called me and said, Sean, why don't we do something? So as of today, I'm back to work (laughs) and I'm I'm loving every minute of it. Oh, well, congratulations. Uh, Yeah. And so one thing I'd like to add before, and I don't know if you have other questions, but for your listeners, money is not about buying stuff. Money is freedom. So whether you're an entrepreneur or not, live beneath your means. So you get enough money so that you can be free because I can tell you at 56 years old, I've got an awful lot of friends that have just their relationship with money has been poor. And now they are really having to trade their time for money every day. And that's just not the way life was intended to be. So you can be an entrepreneur if you want, you can make money, but don't view the money as to buy stuff. It's freedom. It gives me the choice. I had the choice to, if I want to go back to work or I want to do something else. And that freedom
1: is why I can be so optimistic today. That's great advice. That's great advice. Well, Sean, it was great uh, being able to visit with you today. Uh, You've uh, truly been part of some very successful business ventures and sound like you're getting ready to get into another one uh, and provided some great mentoring for those that have had a chance to, to work under you. And thank you for continuing to encourage these students to pursue entrepreneurial opportunities and giving them the advice that you shared with us today. So we really appreciate you being with us.
0: It's been my pleasure, Jack, and I admire the work that you do, and I'm a big fan.
1: Well, that wraps up another Knowledge Cast, and we really appreciate you guys being with us and hope to have you back next week as we speak with another interesting guest. And until then, make sure you're being a positive influence in the lives of others.